Hello and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. Over the past quarter century, Garla Marsh has had a super interesting career in philanthropy and progressive politics. For nearly a decade, starting in the mid-1990s, he worked for George Soros, helping Soros figure out how to give away hundreds of millions of dollars in the United States. During that time, the Open Society Foundations would emerge as a key early funder of causes like criminal justice reform and marriage equality. Then Garrett went to work for another top mega donor, Chuck Feeney, and led Atlantic Philanthropies, where he was once again in charge of giving away huge piles of money. After that, he became head of the Democracy Alliance, a network of wealthy donors that collectively moves tens of millions of dollars a year to progressive causes. Along the way, Gara has worked with just about every important organization and leader on the left. Probably nobody better knows the strengths and weaknesses of today's progressive infrastructure than he does. Gara has also spent quite a bit of time thinking about the problematic nature of philanthropy, especially when it's billionaires like Soros and Feeney giving away the money. He's been a practitioner of big philanthropy, but also a thoughtful critic. I always learn something listening to Gary LaMarche, and it's great to have a chance to talk to him today. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here. So uh, it's a little hard to know where to begin this conversation, given your very long history in progressive politics and philanthropy. Uh, you spent a decade at the ACLU in the 1980s. Uh, you were at the Penn American Center but I guess the point where I'd like to pick up the story is when you go work for George Soros at the uh, Open Society Institute. Uh, that was in 1990, I guess. So you were really getting in on the ground floor of what was became and what was it already at the time, one of the great philanthropic enterprises in history. Tell me about that. Well, it was 1996. Uh, uh, Soros had been... Uh, principally active uh, philanthropically uh, in other parts of the world, you know, famously in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, a bit in Africa, a bit in Latin America. So his global foundation network, I would say in the five or so years before 1996 had become already quite large and, and, and had enormous impact. He never originally wanted to work in the United States. He began to make some forays in the mid nineties before I got there into drug policy. He thought that the debate over drugs in the United States was was one-sided and there needed to be more open discussion about drug policy. So he formed something called the Linda Smith Center, which was kind of a think tank on drug policy. And then he started the Project on Death in America, which was about the way people die, care at the end of life. And those were two things that were primarily focused on the United States, but he hadn't really thought of establishing a bigger U.S. program, partly, I think, because George felt when he started his philanthropy, all of which is organized around the concept of an open society. He was heavily influenced, as most people know, by Karl Popper. He thought of the United States as essentially an open society, 
in the way that, uh, in that it had you know, civil rights and liberties and free press and free education and all the kinds of things that he was trying to establish in the former Soviet sphere. What he came to believe in the around 94 or 95, seeing the Gingrich Congress and seeing what he, he, he thought of was, was kind of growing uh, tendency toward market fundamentalism, what he would call market fundamentalism, he began to think that the United States needed more of his philanthropic attention, and he gathered some people together to advise him. And um, in short, all this evolved over the years, he decided that, you know, the principal problem in the United States was not so much open society in the traditional sense, but inequality and, and distortions of power and, and insufficient access to, 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 to goods and services. And so he, uh, well, Arie Nair, actually, who was the president of the foundation, who I had worked with at both ACLU and Human Rights Watch, uh, knew that I was a little restless at Human Rights Watch looking for the next thing. I never really aspired to be in philanthropy, but when the opportunity came to create a bigger program around a set of U.S. issues, criminal justice, education, reproductive rights, immigration reform, and so on, I thought it was a, a great opportunity. So when I started, there was just a handful of employees and a very small budget of a couple million dollars. And it was probably the greatest experience of my professional life because I got to create something in a great institution from almost nothing. And so between May of 96, when I came on, and about a year later, we went from about $5 million to $100 million in spending and, and about a couple of staff to about 100 staff. It was a very, very rapid growth operation. You know, it's interesting to look back to that moment in the mid-1990s, because it was after that Gingrich takeover of the Congress, which was really the beginning of this extremist turn in the Republican Party. Uh, and one of the things people forget is that attacking immigrants was very much part of the of the agenda. There was a draconian crackdown on, on benefits, public benefits for immigrants as part of that welfare bill. I know that George Soros was incensed by that. And uh, and did he see himself as sort of battling the Republicans at that point, or uh, was he still taking well, this more open society kind of nonpartisan view of things? Well, you know, his political profile, which of course was not through the foundation, didn't really come into a, a larger public view until around the time of the 2004 election. So George was a political donor, um, you know, like a lot of rich people, he leaned Democrat, he gave money to candidates, he wasn't that interested in politics, uh, and he really had no political profile. He began in the late 90s to do some funding on the, uh, through his, in his personal side, of uh, ballot initiatives that had to do with drug policy, medical marijuana initiatives and things like that. So that was his first foray into electoral politics. But no, in 94, five, six and so on, George saw himself um, as, as, as very, and the foundation is very much a kind of a non-Protestant, non-ideological place. But it was also the kind of place where, in, I think probably is to this day, but it certainly was the kind of place where if you had a good idea about something that wasn't in the plan, you could go to him and he might very well do it. Right. So that's how we got the criminal justice work done. It wasn't something George was particularly passionate or knowledgeable about, but Arie Nair and I had come out of the ACLU, out of Human Rights Watch. We were very concerned about mass incarceration. And we managed, which is probably one of the 
few issues that the domestic programs of the United States uh, at, at, at OSI is heavily identified with to this day, uh, although it has a lot of other company today. But when we started doing the criminal justice work in 96, there was virtually no foundation that was funding criminal justice reform. So, but it wasn't a George passion, it was a passion of ours. On the other hand, I mentioned earlier, and you mentioned immigration, immigrant rights. George was, that wasn't part of our original plan for the U.S. programs. I mean, I, I was concerned about it. I thought we might get around to it eventually, but it wasn't one of the programs we set out to develop. What happened, which was a pretty good example of the way he can sometimes work, is that in August, I think it was, of 96, or the summer of 96, the House passed the welfare reform bill that Clinton finally signed. And one of the kind of pills he had to swallow with that bill was the termination of benefits, social safety net benefits for legal immigrants. I think if I recall correctly, the dollar figure of that was something like $16 billion. And while Clinton didn't like doing it, he did it kind of at the point of a gun. George was very concerned about that. We had no, at that time, we weren't doing anything on welfare reform generally, but we had a consultation at his house. We would have these um, meetings at his house in Bedford most of the time in order to figure out what kind of thing we would do on an issue where many foundations would have higher bridge span or do a whole process of consultation. We never did anything like that, for better or for worse. There were very few consultants ever employed in figuring out our programs. But what we did tend to do is bring six or seven or eight people together to talk about how we might address an issue. So I remember there was a day in September of 96 when we had organized such a meeting at George's house over a weekend, it was, I remember Bill Moyers was there and Lonnie Guineer was there because it was about money and politics, which was something we had set out to address. And we weren't sure what we were going to do, but we brought together people from the Brennan Center and all kinds of people. And we had this meeting and I hired a woman named Rosa, well, Aaron Reich at the time, now Rosa Brooks, who's the law professor at Georgetown, who was, you know, 26 or something, and I'd worked with her at Human Rights Watch to kind of be a scribe for the meeting. And so Rosa took notes for the meeting. At the end of the meeting, as everybody had left, Aria and I, and Rosa was still there, were behind, and George said, would you stay for a minute? I want to talk to you about something. And he said, you know, they passed this bill you know, to uh, strip uh, legal uh, immigrants from benefits. And I, I, I'm outraged by it. I was an immigrant myself when I was in the UK as a young man. I broke my leg and the National Health Service took care of me. And I want to do something about it. And I want to spend $50 million to do something about it. It just picked the number out of the air. I think the number was influenced by the fact that he'd had a big philanthropic initiative around Bosnia a few years before, or Sarajevo. And $50 million was, A, a lot of money, and actually more than the current budget of the U.S. programs at that time. And so he said, I'd like you to develop some kind of a grant-making program. I want." And his original idea was that if they were going to strip benefits from immigrants, he was going to make more citizens. So what he wanted to do was help people with English language classes, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Rosa, who was standing nearby, said, you could call it the Emma Lazarus Fund, you know, <laughs> because of the words on the basis of Statue of Liberty. And we all thought that was a great idea. So that was, let us say, September 7th, I think, you know, in, 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 uh, 2000, in, in 1996. I, I think I'm right about this date. On September 30th, we had a, an event at the National Press Club announcing the Emma Lazarus Fund and its director. We hired very quickly uh, Antonio Maciel, who had been at the Joyce Mertz Gilmore Foundation. 
that's how quickly we moved in those days to do something we hadn't planned to do in the first place. Looking back at that early Soros philanthropy in the U.S., I'm struck by how much of it was really bold, taking on issues that nobody was touching. You mentioned criminal justice reform, now a very hot issue, but at that time, almost yeah. nobody was, was touching it. This was still during this period when the war on crime was in, was in full swing with bipartisan support. Uh, another issue, of course, is drug legalization, and Soros was one of the first people on the scene there. And, and flash forward to today, marijuana is legal for all adults in 34 states. And, and, and then another was marriage equality. And, and, and say something about that, because I know that back then there was not a lot of uh, fund. When you all started putting money into, into this issue, there was not a lot of funders who were in that area. And how did that come about? Well, the difference, I think, in that issue, which I will talk about in the others, is that we didn't, we weren't the first on marriage equality. We were the first on, well, whatever first means. I mean, the Ed McConnell Clark Foundation for many years had had a prison reform program, and then they were ending it around the time we started. And we didn't take it in that. We didn't really go in a prisoner's rights direction. We went in a direction of, of why are so many people incarcerated in the United States? And we also eventually took on uh, indigent defense and, and death penalty. You know, I've often thought about this because, you know, a mantra in philanthropy, and most foundations follow this, is that you need to have you know, partners uh, to do things. And you want to have a collaboration. Nobody wants to be, the, very often people don't want to be the first, particularly if it's something controversial. And, you know, when I think back on Soros, while over time, I think we acquired partners and we, we made it safe for other people to do it. And now, of course, Open Society is not the leading criminal justice reformer. There's there's probably a couple dozen foundations, including all the significant mainstream foundations like Ford. And, um, but I don't think we ever would have done the work on, on, a, on drug policy reform or criminal justice had we waited for partners. We just had to do it and spend. And I sometimes wonder, particularly with rich people, why they don't just get out there and start it and, you know, and, and wait for others to follow. That's what we did anyway. Now, marriage equality... George was not, I don't even know how aware of it he was. I mean, we didn't fund marriage equality to anything like the um, scale that we funded these other things. But, you know, that was a little more almost serendipitous. You know, we, I felt that we needed as a so-called mainstream foundation, we were not an LGBT foundation as such, because there were the Gill Foundation and what later became the Arcus Foundation. And a lot of individual donors were out there on marriage equality. They had a civil marriage collaborative and there was of course the Freedom to Marry organization that Evan Wolfson created, not to mention what was going on in Lambda Legal and other places. We were a little late, we were late to that party in the sense that we didn't start it. We were early as a non-LGBT funder. We probably were the first significant non-LGBT funder, except possibly the Haas Jr. Foundation in, in San Francisco. So as is so often the case in philanthropy, at least in my life in philanthropy, there was a little bit of serendipity involved. So I think Tim Sweeney, who used to be at Gill Foundation, who I knew from when we were both very young men in our early 20s at the ACLU, where Lambda started down the hall from my office, he asked if I would meet with him and Evan Wolfson, who had been a lawyer at Lambda Legal Defense, who was starting this rather audacious 
Like he had this audacious plan to make marriage equality legal. So Evan, who I didn't know, came and talked to me and he laid it all out. And I had been quite skeptical. I mean, I'd been involved all through my life in LGBT issues and served on the board of an LGBT organization. But I, I just, it seemed, it seemed a little audacious to me. And I wasn't sure that even for us, you know, it made sense. But I was really kind of struck by how serious his plan was. And I, I listened with an open mind and I thought, well, I think REA should, you know, hear this because if we're going to get into this. So then I had a meeting with him and REA and REA being an ACLU type was asked a lot of questions. But REA, who started out skeptical, also was persuaded that this was something that could work. Uh, and so we put, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in, whatever it was at the time. And uh, then we joined the Civil Marriage Collaborative. But it was more of a case of it's a core human rights issue that wasn't something we'd identified to work on. But in this, this has echoes later on when we talk about my life at Atlantic. I feel that, you know, the best guide that foundations have or should have is a set of values about the world. You know, in our case, a strong set of open society human rights values. And, you know, you should have strategic plans and all that kind of stuff. And you should, you know, uh, not do everything and not be everything to all people. But you should also be open to the possibility that some plan that someone else has that advances your values is something you should invest in, even if it wasn't invented here. Well, so you spent uh, a decade, um, I guess, more than a decade at Open Society uh, and I mean, it's a pretty impressive track record when you think about where things are today. Drug, le drug legalization in many states, marriage equality, the law of the land, mass incarceration on the very front burner uh, of the political agenda. Um, you then well, not to mention the changes, not to mention the fact that, the, that there's been a big change in the culture of dying, the culture of end of life care. Right, 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 right. Uh, you uh, then go from uh, working for George Soros to helping Chuck Feeney uh, give away his fortune in 2007. Feeney had made billions uh, in duty-free shops and then had sort of famously declared he was going to give it all away while he was still alive. Giving while living uh, was his mantra. You spend a few years there. I, I guess I don't want to spend too much time talking about Atlantic um, but I'm, I'm keen to hear about the, you know, this very important grant you made while you were there uh, to help enact the Affordable Care Act. It's a, a big chunk of money, very unusual kind of thing for a, a, a foundation to do in the middle of a very partisan battle over uh, health care. Uh, tell me that story. Well, it wasn't a partisan battle when we started out. I mean, what happened was um, a couple things. So I was hired at Atlantic because... Um, well, I don't know exactly why I, I applied and they hired me, but they, but I know one of the things they wanted, they knew that it Open society, I'd been identified with, um, you know, kind of edgy kind of advocacy grant making. And also Open Society had not, it had a, a, an arm, uh, it's Open Society Policy Center, a C4 arm, where we had spent significant money on policy stuff, on ballot initiatives and and legislative stuff. So they knew that I had some experience with that toolkit. And because Atlantic had an unusual tax status that allowed it to do a lot of what would be considered C4 funding, uh, they thought that I could take that to, to another level, right? And so I've been hired with a mandate to do that within our existing programs. We didn't have a health program in the United States, by the way, uh, although we had done some work on children's health insurance through our children's program at Atlantic. Um, 
And also, I took some steps when I came on, which I see happening periodically in other foundations, to move money from the programs to a more of a discretionary fund so we could do some things that weren't necessarily in the plan. You know, Atlantic, when I got there, had a $450 million budget, grant-making budget, almost, you know, allocated almost to the penny among the four programs, and the president had very little discretion. So I began to take money back into a central fund. That is not usually a popular thing to do in a foundation when people have budgets to spend or you take some of their money, but it was, it was so much money, it was not difficult to do. So I did that, and then one day I got a call from several people, uh, Roger Hickey, who'd been with Campaign for Americans Future, I think it was called, and uh, Jeff Blum from US Action, and uh, Diane Archer from the Medicare Rights Center, all of whom I knew from various past lives. And they had worked with me at Open Society, and they knew that I was there at Atlantic. And they came to me, and they, wanted, they had a proposal, and they said, we think, this is 2007, by the way, before, before Obama was the nominee, much less the president. They said, we think that there should be a big campaign to repair the biggest gap in the social safety net, which is healthcare. Uh, and we should start it now so we lay the groundwork for the next president you know, to have to do something about it. And while it was bipartisan, I guess it made more sense that the Democrat would have been elected. And, with, and they had a plan that involved getting members of Congress to sign on to a statement of principles so that it would bind or obligate the next president to do something about it. And uh, I think all the then Democratic candidates, you know, Biden, uh, Edwards, Clinton, Obama, signed on to the statement of principles. Um, at the time, it seemed more likely that Hillary might end up the nominee. Anyway, um, we were, we thought, well, why not? do this? Why are we in business? You know, even though healthcare, we're not a healthcare funder in the United States like Commonwealth or Robert Wood Johnson, we do have an unusual capacity to support advocacy and maybe we could do this, building on the work of these other foundations on policy. So I won't go into all the details, it's been chronicled in a couple of books, but we decided to back the coalition that came out of this, which was called HCAN, Healthcare for America Now, which involved some 50-some national groups, organizing groups, labor groups, Planned Parenthood, civil rights groups, religious groups. And essentially what we funded was a very big field operation. And so once there had been a president and once Obama had actually decided to make this his signature issue, then HCAN, you know, came into being. They hired organizers in 49 states. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that given how close it was, the ground game, you know, made a big difference. So we, I don't remember the exact um, formula, but we, we ultimately committed $26.5 million to it over a couple of years. And we raised about $20 million from other sources, including Soros, uh, to, to round it out. So it was roughly a $50 million effort, which is more money than had been seen in an advocacy campaign probably ever. Wow. Meanwhile, of course, you have uh, lots of money on the other side, a much bigger money. Um, but the way that Feeney's money influenced healthcare in that debate and the way that Soros's money influenced so many different issues may sound like a great thing if you're a progressive, but progressives cer certainly aren't happy when Charles Koch or Robert Mercer do that kind of thing, put their thumb on the scale of public policy, uh, all this all, all of this giving, uh, I think, raises troubling questions about wealth and democracy. You know, who are these billionaires to wield uh, so much power 
uh, you know, who was Chuck Feeney? He was a guy who made his fortune in duty-free shops, uh, yet his money played perhaps a decisive role in one of the biggest public policy debates in the last 20 years. And also, is it is it hypocritical for progressives who uh, so often decry the influence of money in politics to rely on these benefactors? I know you've spent quite a bit of time thinking about these questions of big philanthropy and democracy. And, uh, you know, I wonder what your take is on those questions. Well, yes, as you know, I have reflected a lot about them. And I, it's a, it's a contradiction that I've lived for 20 or 25 years. Um, I don't, you know, I think we would like to live in a world where uh, the money of billionaires does not give them undue weight in public policy matters, whether it's on the electoral side or on the kind of advocacy side. And so Soros in particular has been working for campaign finance reform and measures that would reduce, and also tax policies, that would reduce the the weight that someone like him has in the, in the process. I guess the question that... Um, that you have to grapple with, though, in the world in which we live is, while you are doing that, while you are trying to change the system which gives you undue influence, what is the right posture in a world in which the other side is spending a great deal of money to influence public policy? Uh, you know, and I guess where I have come out, where I think Soros comes out, I'm not sure if Feeney thinks about it so much in these terms, and for reasons I could get to, um, is unilateral disarmament is not really an option, you know? So uh, what you have to do is be as transparent about it, as reflective about it. I sleep better personally on this because most of the money that I've had a hand in steering in all my jobs that has influenced public policy is going to grassroots organizations that are democratically controlled. So now you can raise the question of whether that's so good for the grassroots organizations themselves to be more and more dependent on philanthropic money, you know, as opposed to whatever mass base they might have. But, you know, we've just tried to keep ourselves relatively honest by funding organizations that are very close to the ground that, where the change efforts are being led by the people most affected. You say that... Uh... Soros has been fighting for campaign finance reform for many years. But as far as I can see, none of the advocates of campaign finance reform ever talk about philanthropic money and its influence. And none of them seem to have the faintest interest whatsoever in trying to limit the role of philanthropic dollars in influencing public policy. Is that correct? Why do you suppose that is? I mean, I think that the... (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that the, I mean, I had the experience in a slightly different context of urging a, a nonprofit journalism organization to try to open up a beat on philanthropy because I thought it was a big power center. It was insufficiently covered. And one of the reasons we have in the last, whatever it's been, three, four, five years inside philanthropy uh, is that there was an, there was a significant void in the scrutiny being applied to philanthropic power. And, you know, we've had not only the work that you've done and the book that you wrote, but also the work of Anand Giridatis and uh, Rob Reich and, you know, Edgar Villanueva and people have been writing about philanthropy. So it's a little different than it was five or 10 years ago. But I think a lot of people don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. You know, they yeah. just don't. Uh, and so that's a problem. The, the lack of, uh, of scrutiny 
you know, about philanthropy and the lack of pushback from grantees. That's why I served for a number of years on the board of the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy, because that was organized by Pablo Eisenberg way back, you know, 30, 40 years ago to try to be a kind of a grantee group that was lobbying philanthropy for more, you know, social justice funds. I actually think, I mean, I've been, as you know better than most, you know, a weird kind of critic of philanthropy from inside the belly of the beast. And I'm moving a little bit outside the belly in the relatively near future, but I still serve on boards. I'm on on the Open Society Policy Center board. I'm on um, a couple of other philanthropic boards. And, um, but I actually, and I've been a big critic, but I also, um, I feel that actually for a variety of reasons in the last couple of years, the critique has sharpened and been, been more prominent. And I actually, I'm beginning to see some changes in practice that are, are more encouraging to me. Yeah, a case in point being Mackenzie Scott, who yes. uh, seems to be doing everything right in terms of giving big general operating support grants to organizations, no strings attached, not a lot of paperwork uh, and supporting a lot of great stuff. Uh, still, that is a lot of money that she is putting on the table. Yeah. I mean, $6 billion in the last year. So I want to turn to the Democracy Alliance. That's where you've been for the last uh, seven years. Another another organization, another, another perch where you've interacted with a lot of wealthy donors uh, that power that organization. Uh, some of our listeners will know about the DA, others will not. So it'd be good to just uh, start by describing and saying a little bit what it does. And how it and how it's organized? It's a shadowy network. Of, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean no. I, I mean I, I look at our clips. Every, you know, we have one of these alerts on us, and you know I look at the social media discussion, and you know we punch way above our weight on the uh, in terms of the imagination, the fevered imagination of the right. You know we're pulling the strings for well, George Soros is pulling our strings, and and we're pulling the strings of Black Lives Matter and everybody else. It's crazy, but no. I mean the the DA was founded 15 years ago. It is unlike the two other institutions I've worked with that give out money. It is a an association of donors. It's about a hundred high net worth individuals, eight or nine labor unions, fifteen or so progressive foundations who are affiliated with us in a slightly different way, and um, and uh, they're aligned around trying to build a stronger progressive infrastructure. I guess is the right way to put it. And it was founded by a guy named Rob Stein about 15 years ago. And what he did was he took the research that had been done by him and others on what the right had built, you know, think tanks, the legal groups like Federalist Society, leadership institutes, things like that. And he mapped out what they had done and how they had done it, you know, since the Powell Memorandum, you know, the famous so-called Lewis Powell Memorandum in 1970. And then he, he laid that all out for progressive donors and said, we should band together to create some alternatives. And so that was the basic operating premise of it. And they set about to be kind of seed capital for what now are a number of significant institutions on the left. So there is, for Neera Tandon, for instance, has been nominated to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget. She's the president of the Center for American Progress. The Democracy Alliance, along with a few donors like Herbin Marion Sandler, late Herbin Marion Sandler and George Soros and others, kind of built that up into a whatever it is, a $40 million operation on the progressive side. It didn't really exist, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, the American Constitution Society, which is the counterpart to the Federalist Society, Media Matters for America, which monitors the media, all those things 
were created out of the sense there was a gap by donors in and around the Democracy Alliance. And then at the same time, we took a look at some groups that were already existing that were significant, like the Brennan Center for Justice or the um, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, where both those organizations were exclusively funded by foundations. They had no individual donor base to speak of. And so we helped them diversify their donor base and kind of work more closely together with the other groups. And so the basic premise of the DA is that the business model is these donors pay dues for our our advice to be part of our our group. We have, in the past, we've had semi-annual conferences that are kind of like a crossroads for the progressive movement. Of course, we've had to move to virtual in the last uh, 10 months or so. And... um, and we, we kind of assess the landscape, make recommendations for investment, and the donors agree, and beyond their dues, they agree to pay at least a couple, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to organizations that we recommend to them. Now, the big difference between us and the Cokes, aside from the fact that my donors are not acting in, in economic self-interest like the Cokes are, uh, is that they are uh, typical of the right, have more of a command and control operation. So there's a plan, you play into the plan, and uh, the money gets spent according to that. We, from the beginning, made a fateful decision to um, make recommendations to donors and to try to raise money from them, but it's their option what to give to. And so it has made it, in as the years have gone on, a little more difficult to have the kind of concentrated impact on certain fields like the Cokes have had. There are exceptions to that, which I could talk to, but so it's a different business model than the right has, but, um, but it's the same basic premise, which is, you know, donors come together around a set of values to try to build work together to build some core infrastructure around a set of progressive values. So you've spent a lot of time on the road, I know, in the last seven years trying to recruit donors, uh, new donors to the Democracy Alliance. What kind of rich person throws in their hat with a hard-hitting progressive organization uh, with a lot of labor unions involved? What's the profile of your donor? Who says yes when, when you show up to, to uh, on, a, on a recruitment call to join the Democracy Alliance? And what kind of a wealthy person is much less likely to get involved. Well, I mean, I've operated on the premise in the years that I've been at the DA that although my own views, I would say, are more on the left wing of the Democratic Party, if you will, the kind of Warren wing, um, and my own views on on matters of race and gender and so on, or you know, are more on the progressive side, that the DA itself ought to be a relatively big tent of progressives. You know, I have not wanted it to be a sectarian institution in that you're not welcome here if you don't, you know, have the same view as everybody else. So I would say there's a range of DA donors from people who are relatively ardent capitalists, you know, who are, who've been in hedge funds and things like that, who, um, you know, who, who, who buy into, if you will, a kind of a social human rights agenda but might have a, a, a more market-friendly approach to economic stuff, uh, to people who are, you know, very much uh, for taxing the rich very heavily and for a much stronger government role. I mean, the DA in its own strategies has moved several notches to the left, as the donor class has as a whole. And I think we've had something to do 
with moving donors in a certain direction around the economy, around around race and gender. But but I've tried to keep it a big tent. So in that sense, uh, David, I don't know that there's a typical DA donor. We have everybody from kind of social justice progressives who are fundamentally concerned with grassroots uh, action uh, to people who are more comfortable with, you, you know, think tanks and, and policy type work. I would say, though, that... Um, there are among the individual donors there are a couple of types there are people who are very active and have clear strategies for their own philanthropy and their own political giving and they're eager to be part of a community where they can interact with others and they can help get partners for their own passions there's plenty of those who are more sophisticated if you if that's the right word i mean who really have thought a lot about it and then we have a lot of donors who join the DA because they're just becoming active philanthropically. You know, they maybe they've made their money or they're not they're not as prominent in their business anymore and they have more time to devote to it. And they want help sorting through the landscape and they want to learn about things. They want us to expose them to things that they would not have heard about and to meet leaders and initiatives they wouldn't have heard about. And and they want us to influence their giving and help to shape it. I mean, obviously, I like that kind of donor very much because, <laughs> because you know, they, they really want to learn. And, and, and then what happens is there's a trajectory, right? People are part of the DA, and they're part of it over time, and they do form relationships with these groups, and they do know the landscape more. And some of them, not, not often, but sometimes people say, I think you brought me to where I need to be like finishing therapy or something like that. I like to argue that the metaphor is more like going to the gym where you have to keep exercising the muscle. You can't stop after you get to a certain point, but everybody's different. So we, we have a fairly high retention rate. I think people like what they're getting. I, I found over the years that when I started the job, I talked to all the donors one-on-one to get a sense of what they what their expectations of the DA were. And I was a little surprised to find that of the two values two pieces of the value proposition for the Democracy Alliance, uh, strategic coordinated funding and community, that most people uh, elevated community a bit above the strategic funding. They want to be in a group of folks who are, um, who, who share their values and they can learn from. And that's particularly important for the kinds of donors we have in red states. We have people who are, you know, progressives in red places who really like being with people who share their values where they don't have to hide them. And then we have plenty of people from the two coasts who live in, you know, relative bubbles. You know, it's a, it's a more eclectic group than, than you might think. And I guess I've seen my job, all of my jobs over the last 25 years, is trying to kind of redistribute money from wealthy people to social justice causes, particularly those led by grassroots. And, um, and the DA, you know, has been a place that I feel I've been able to move, not just by myself, but with, the, with allies, toward a more social justice-oriented direction, toward one where there's much more of an emphasis on a theory of the case about the value of organizing and the, batter, uh, and the value of, uh, of people power, if you will. And it's true that progressive politics really has changed a lot uh, since you first arrived at the Democracy Alliance seven years ago. There's been a huge influx of movement activists, including many younger people of color, and certainly issues of race have moved much more front and center. And on the other hand, we still have this donor class 
that is very wealthy, largely white, typically older, uh, very different lived experiences here between the, the donor class and uh, the activist class. This seems like a potentially challenging kind of partnership to manage. You've sort of had a front row seat uh, to this at the Democracy Alliance through your convenings, bringing together these different worlds. How has that played out? Well, I think you put your finger on the fact that, you know, in a group of given wealth patterns in this country, you know, the DA was seven years ago, you know, a primarily white institution, certainly the donors, most of the staff, and disproportionately the groups that we recommended for funding, right? And for that matter, disproportionately the people who who spoke at the conferences or were exposed to the donors. Now, I've been able, again, and not by myself, but with my own staff and allies in the partnership and the movement, most of those indicators are quite different. You know, the staff has been at times, you know, two-thirds people of color. My senior team have been black women at various points. So the staffing is different. I think, I'm pretty sure that more than half of the groups in the portfolio are led by people of color, include people of color organizations. We have a new American Majority Fund and a climate and equity fund that, that only fund BIPOC groups at the grassroots level. The people speaking at the conferences are extremely diverse group, and most of the people who've emerged as leaders, you know, um, in the progressive movement today, you know, were first uh, got among their earlier platforms, you know, at the Democracy Alliance. Uh, the, le- the lagging indicator is that composition of the donors. The donors, I mean, I've tried to recruit donors of color. We have more donors of color than we had. We have four four of our 12 board members are people of color. Uh, So that is a big change from 10 years ago, let's say. Uh, But we have a ways to go on the donor front. So, you know, as you probably know, there have been some efforts which we've uh, tried to give our own blessing and encouragement to, you know, the donors of color network, which was formed by Cindy Maxton and Urvashi Bad and others, I think is a really encouraging development. I don't know much about the composition of other donor networks in terms of their donors. Some of them may do a better job, I'm not sure. But I think most of the progressive donor networks would be in roughly the same situation. More of the money is white and more of the places the money goes is to BIPOC organizations. And um, it's something to continue to work on because, you know, there are, it, it requires, and this is true of all institutions in this world, is it, it probably requires, you know, changes in institutional culture, you know, uh, in a way that, that are structural, if you will, you know, and I think we, you know, in the light, light of the reckoning that we've all been through in the last year, I think we have a lot more to do, more work to do about that. So just uh, as we wrap up here, uh, the Democracy Alliance was created 15 years ago to build up a progressive infrastructure. I wonder, just taking stock of kind of where progressives are in this long kind of enterprise of building a robust progressive infrastructure that can build that true and enduring electoral majority that can govern in this country. You know, what do you see as as the places where big gaps remain? Uh, what are the key weaknesses and how much money, more money, do we really need to come to the table to uh, address those gaps and, and, and strengthen that infrastructure to where it needs to be? 
Well, look, there have been a lot of successes, and I've mentioned a couple of those, and we could talk more about them, but I'm going to gloss over that for a minute because that's not the question that you asked, right? So I think there's, I feel pretty good about the way the needle has moved, both uh, in policy terms and in the capacity. When you look at the way Roosevelt Institute and Demos and CAP, there's a hugely expanded and progressive policy infrastructure that is now, and if you look at Biden's economic plan, we're, we're talking on a day when Biden yesterday laid out his uh, stimulus package. And I've been looking today at the um, coverage of that, and I have been uh, noticing that the left has been pretty uh, complimentary toward it. And it hasn't been criticized as too little, too late or anything like that. It reflects a big kind of caring economy. It reflects a minimum wage. It reflects a lot of things that progressives have advocated for a while. And it's no surprise because some of the people that he has in key economic positions like uh, Jared Bernstein or Heather Boucher and so on in Neera Tandon come out of the institutions that groups like the Democracy Alliance has been funding for years. So that's good news. I think that there, if I had to say two things that we have not done well on, I think leadership development is one. I think there is very little at scale in on the progressive side that trains leaders in, in the larger sense of being in a movement and having a movement career. And I think the right has done that very well through the Federalist Society and the, and the legal piece. But across the board, and I don't think, I mean, I've worked for progressive organizations all my life, and I've tried to be somebody with an eye for talent and moving people around, you know, up and encouraging people to take on more. And I feel good for what I've been able to do personally in that. But almost no institution that I've been affiliated with has a real structural approach to that. And I think that movement-wide and institution-wide, we are um, very poor at leadership development. And the other piece of it, I guess I would say, and I have mixed feelings on this, is um, is media. I mean, if you look at the big difference between the right and us, it's that they have, you know, a media infrastructure, Fox, you know, various websites, now it's Newsmax and so on, that is a kind of an ecosystem, you know, that uh, gives us a hard time and also kind of promotes their messages. And there was a kind of a symbiotic relationship between a lot of these outlets and the Trump administration. We don't have anything like that. And, and I guess where I have mixed feelings is I don't know whether we should in the same way. Progressives have a different set of values. I don't think it's simply a matter of creating some parallel propaganda network or some parallel, you know, bubble universe. But I think it, it, what is, I'll, I guess I'll close by saying that one of the curious things, in my view, about progressive donors is how few of them have had a serious interest in putting money into you know, media and communications. So, you know, people came while I was there and probably in the years since to Soros saying, why don't you buy CNN or this or that, you know? And George, because he's an open society and an anti-propaganda guy, has always been resistant. I don't want to put my thumb down, you know, on the other side of the scale. And uh, he's, he's never wanted to do that. You have this terrific development of nonprofit journalism like ProPublica and the Marshall Project and what you're doing, but I don't, um, it's not at anything like that scale, and nor is it identified ideologically or progressive. We don't have that. So what the exact, what we should be doing, even at this stage, I'm a little less clear, but I would say that if you looked at the two big areas in which we're outgunned and you see the cost of it, because we should be doing even better than we are, I think it's leadership and uh, media. 
I would add that it, it seems there's more investment needed in uh, legal infrastructure. If you look at the Federalist Society and its power, uh, and also, I still don't think that the think tank gap has been closed. I mean, you know, Heritage Foundation's budget is twice the budget of CAP, AEI, Cato. I mean, these are these are much bigger institutions than a Demos or a Roosevelt uh, Institute. Yeah, well, I wasn't trying to be exhaustive, and I don't disagree there are still gaps. But I think we've done a better job in creating the ideas piece of it than we've done in the other piece of it. And the other thing I would have said, and I will say, is that um, we have way underinvested in these people of color organizations. You know, it's it's a struggle from all kinds of donors to get money for grassroots organizations, for people of color-led organizations, and the, you know, the, the the dollars, you know, have not matched the rhetoric uh, uh, yet uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the progressive donor world. Now, I think in the last year, we have to kind of, I think that's begun to change in significant ways. A lot of big foundations Ford, Open Society, uh, Mackenzie Scott, Susan Sandler, you know, have made significant investments. And it may very well be post-George Floyd and so on, that that is beginning to change. And if so, that's terrific. But I'm sure we still have a ways to go. It's late in coming. And um, I think it's still, you know, when you get back to this issue of structural biases, I think a lot of white donors traditionally are more comfortable funding I don't want to call it white-led infrastructure, but, you know, CAP, while led by a person of color, is not a black organization. And so if you look at the scale of resources going into Center for American Progress, for instance, or as against a joint center, center for Political and Economic Studies or, or pieces of, of kind of black infrastructure, it's not even close. So, so a lot of these, you know, groups like Demos and um, Roosevelt and CAP, which were founded by uh, white men in most cases, are led by people of color, women of color, men of color. They're, they've changed a lot, but that doesn't make them, you know, black or brown infrastructure. And that is beginning to come. Yeah, and McKinsey Scott being a great example of a donor who's put big money into organizations led by people of color. A, a large number of her major grantees have been such organizations. Uh, so I think that's a hopeful note to close on, Gara. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy talking to you, and I'm a big admirer of the work you're doing and um, look forward to more conversations. <laughs>